Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of uh, Never To Be Seen Again, the podcast. Um, So this week, we are on episode 22, and in last week in episode 21, we talked about Oklahoma. If you missed that episode, you really did miss a whole lot, a whole lot. Um, So go back and listen to that episode, because it was quite an interesting one. Uh, But this week in episode 22, we're going to be talking about uh, Michigan. So we uh, we're headed back east again. Um, So for this week, I have um, a dozen missing people for you in this episode. But um, I only have seven cases, which means... Five cases are double disappearances, and I have two single disappearances to cover this week. Um, And all of these cases are actually uh, really good. They are short uh, for the most part, but they are really good. And it's thundering and lightning here, so if you hear that in the background, I'm sorry. So are you ready to get into it? Let's go. Um, so we're going to start this week off in 1964 with the double disappearance of Mildred Patricia Zintner and her daughter Patricia Louise Zintner. Once again, let me just mention at the very beginning of this episode that all of these cases are on the Charlie Project. Listen, if you can, please go donate to the Charlie Project. I honestly would be really lost in these cases without that site. Um, They do a wonderful job of really telling you a concise story about each case. And they do have most of the cases that I cover on this podcast there. So it's really, really remarkable. And I'm glad that they are there. So, okay. So Mildred and Patricia Zintner. We'll start with Mildred first. Uh, Mildred is case number 3047 DFMI in the Doe Network and case number MP9908 in NamUs. She is a Caucasian female born on March 17th of 1936. She was 28 at the time of her disappearance and she would be 84 now. She had brown hair, it's probably gray now, um, and she has blue eyes. She stood at five foot seven and weighed 126 pounds. Mildred has a calcium buildup on her right wrist, and she also wears glasses. Her nickname is Millie. Her daughter is case number 3048 DFMI in the Doe Network, case number MP9909 in NamUs, and her NC uh, MEC number is 1170646. Patricia Louise Zintner uh, is also a Caucasian female. She has blonde hair and blue eyes. She was born on April 1st, so April Fool's Day of 1962. She was only two when she disappeared, and she would be 58 now. She was only three foot tall and 31 pounds at the time of her disappearance, and her nickname is Patty Lou. Sadly, um, this story is going to sound a little familiar because we've come across the same time, the same type of case, time and time again. Um, so, it's August twenty eighth of nineteen sixty four in Garden City, Michigan. Mildred and her husband Jesse Zentner Jr. had been married for six years at this point. So, two year old Patty Lou is of course in her terrible twos, and she had misbehaved. I don't know what she had done. But she did something wrong, and Jesse spanked her for her behavior. Now, Mildred did not like this at all and told Jesse so. That caused her and Jesse to get into an argument. Now, I guess uh, Jesse left the house at some point. Uh, maybe he left to cool off, or maybe he had something to do. I'm not sure. But what I do know is that. According to Jesse, when he comes back to the house, Millie and Patty Lou are gone. They're not there. Now, some personal items were missing from the home, like Patty Lou's potty chair. But what wasn't missing was their clothing. 
that had been left behind. Allegedly, and this is according to Jesse, Mildred had left a typewritten uh, note for Jesse. What it said, I can't tell you because we don't know, but um, we do know, well, according to Jesse, is that he tore it up and threw it away. So two weeks later, Jesse drove to Pennsylvania to ask Mildred's parents if they had heard from Mildred and Patricia. Of course, they hadn't, but this keyed them off to the idea that something was wrong. And they decided to report Mildred and Patricia missing at that time. Now, think about that. Um, and we come across this a lot in the cases that I cover. But that was two weeks later. Two weeks after they disappeared. So that was two weeks of potential leads. Two weeks of searches. Two weeks uh, of clues that are now gone and might not be able to be recovered. Not to mention, sometime in that two-week period, the trash had to have passed and the alleged note from Mildred was gone forever. So the investigator seemed, the investigation seemed pretty doomed from the beginning, and there was really nothing for a pretty long time. The investigation into the disappearance was reopened in 2004, though, and at that time, police excavated Mildred and Jesse's former home in the 1200 block of Deering Street. But that search proved to be unfruitful because they didn't find anything that would contribute uh, any clues to the investigation. So Jesse is apparently retired and he moved to Florida. Um, I really, I don't know how invested uh, in the investigation he is. I don't know, I couldn't find anything, I'll just say that, about him advocating for his wife and daughter's um, search or investigation. There was just nothing with his name on it. Uh, Mildred's parents both died in the 1980s, but Mildred's sister, is still alive and searches for her and Patricia. She is a huge advocate for locating her sister. So please help her find her sister and her niece. And if you know anything about Mildred and Patricia Zintner's disappearance, you can contact the Garden City Police Department and provide them with any information that you may know. Okay, so... This next case is not a double disappearance. It is a single. Let's talk about case number 1259DMMI in the Doe Network and case number MP9147 in NamUs. Let's talk about the disappearance of Perry Otto Corlew. Perry is a Caucasian male with brown hair and green eyes. He was born on July 5th of 1956. Uh, he was 18 at the time of his disappearance, and he would be 63, almost 64 now. He was between 6 foot 2 and 6 foot 4, and 155 and 165 pounds. Uh, Perry wears glasses. So Perry's disappearance is a pretty bizarre one. Um, it's March 15th of 1974 in Grayling, Michigan. Uh, Perry is in a green 1971 Buick Skylark that he was in the process of purchasing. It's about 8.30 p.m. when Perry gets into an auto accident in front of the Rialto Theater. Perry hit a parked car. The accident was pretty minor, no one was injured, and the only damage to Perry's vehicle was a broken headlight. Now, Perry leaves the scene before police arrive. And no one really knows why this, why he decided to leave, but his family um, speculates that it was because uh, this wasn't Perry's first accident. Uh, he had a, a pretty poor driving record, and he was also on probation for breaking and entering. So perhaps he thought he was going to get in more trouble and fled the scene so that he wouldn't. About an hour and a half after the accident, the green Skylark was found. It was on the side of Interstate 75, about 15 miles south of Grayling. 
The engine was running, the lights were on, and the driver's side door was open. Perry was nowhere around, though. There was snow on the ground, but there were no footprints in the snow around the vehicle. Over four decades later, Perry has still never been seen again. In the years following Perry's disappearance, a number of possible sightings have been reported. Perry's friends stated that he had been thinking of traveling to California, and there was also speculation that he went to southern Michigan or Florida. Regardless, none of these produced any solid evidence of Perry's whereabouts. So let me tell you about something weird that happened, though. So Perry has a younger brother named Michael. Sometime after Perry's disappearance, I think this was sometime in the 2000s or the 2010s, a phone call was received. Michael answered the phone, and the person on the other end began talking. Now, before Perry's disappearance, he and Michael would talk like Looney Tunes characters to each other. This person on the other end of the phone was speaking like a Looney Tunes character. Michael says, now, uh, is this Perry Corlew? Is this you, Perry? And the person says, Perry who? The phone call uh, ended without Michael knowing for sure if this was Perry or not. Um, if it wasn't Perry, though, that was a pretty awful um, and sick uh, joke. After Perry's disappearance, his parents did move away from Grayling because of work. But when they retired, they returned to Grayling just in case Perry was ready to come home. In a 2014 interview, Michael had this to say to Perry. And I just want to tell you what it says in case somehow, somewhere, Perry is listening. Um, I want him to know what his brother uh, is saying. He says... You better let us know you're okay. Call mom and dad. They want to hear from you. They love you. Just whatever the problem was, it's evaporated. Nobody's looking for you other than your loved ones. So call us. Now, I'm not sure if Perry's parents have died since 2014 because they were in their 80s uh, at the time and they were in poor health. Uh, but obviously, Michael, Perry's brother is still searching for his his uh, big brother. Um, so if you have any information that could reunite Perry Otto Corlew with his brother, please contact the Crawford County Sheriff's Department. So that was a pretty quick icebreaker case, um, but I have another one for you. This is the disappearance of Pamela Sue Hobley and Patricia Ann Spencer. This is a Halloween disappearance. Uh, Patricia is the older, so I'll tell you about her first. She is case number 3081DFMI in the Doe Network, case number MP11479 in NamUs, and her NCMEC number is 1175069. She is a Caucasian female with brown hair and blue eyes. She was born on January 10th of 1953, and she was 16 at the time of her disappearance. Uh, she would be 67 now. She stood between 5 foot 3 and 5 foot 4 and weighed 120 pounds. Patricia goes by Patty. Uh, she is supposed to wear glasses, but she was not wearing them at the time of her disappearance. She has a dog bite scar on one of her legs. Uh, I'm not sure which one. She was last seen wearing a gray and, uh, and green plaid jacket, a brown sweater, a matching brown tweed or plaid skirt, brown shoes with a thick heel, and a silver necklace with a peace symbol pendant. Now, if that's not an indication of the time period we're going to be talking about, um, Pamela is case number 3080DFMI in the Doe Network, case number MP11478 in NamUs, and her NCMEC number is 1175075. She is also a Caucasian female with brown hair and brown eyes. She was born on May 25th 
1954 and was 15 at the time of her disappearance. She would be 66 now. She stood between 5 foot 6 and 5 foot 8 and was between 100 and, uh, 100 and 115 pounds. Pamela goes by Pam. She has a scar on the bridge of her nose and a scar or birthmark on the left corner of her mouth. She was last seen wearing a three-quarter length white imitation fur coat with a brown trim, a, a long-sleeved blouse with ruffled cuffs, a brown and white plaid skirt, white knee socks, and chunky shoes with a thick heel. Okay, um, so this story is a little odd to me. It's odd in a different way, though. Uh, so 16-year-old Patty and 15-year-old Pam went to Oscada. I think I'm saying that right. Oscada High School in Oscada, Michigan. Now, Pam and Patty were not friends. So how they ended up together on the day they went missing is what I don't fully understand. Um, maybe they had just ran into each other. It says they weren't friends, but they might have been acquaintances. Uh, I'm not sure. So it's 1969, Friday, October 31st, in Oscada, Oscoda, Oscoda, Michigan. Not only is it Halloween, it's Oscada High School's homecoming weekend. The football game and trick-or-treating is happening on this night. Now, earlier, 15-year-old Pam told her mother and three sisters that she planned to come home after she went to the football game and a Halloween party. So, from what I understand, she wasn't planning on going home after school, but it would be later after the party when she planned on going home. So, the day goes on as normal for everyone else, apparently. Uh, Pam's family goes trick-or-treating, and when they get home, Pam still hasn't come home. So Pam's mom gets in contact with Pam's fiancé. Now Pam is the 15-year-old. Pam's mom gets in, gets in contact with Pam's fiancé, and he says that Pam hadn't shown up to that Halloween party. So Pam's mom uh, starts calling other parents and finds out that Patty Spencer hadn't arrived at the party either, but apparently she had plans to go. Eventually, and I don't know how long they waited, but they, uh, Patty and Pam are reported uh, as missing. So an investigation is conducted, and part of the beginning stages of the investigation is law enforcement asking the community for information and assistance in locating the girls. For about the first week, investigators speculated that the girls had ran away with the intentions of going to Flint, Michigan. Now, I don't know why Flint, Michigan was the place that they thought that they were going to head to. I don't know what kind of information they had that led them uh, to that conclusion. But of course, their families didn't see this as a real possibility because both girls had good things going on in their life. They were also very close to their families. Probably the biggest indication that they hadn't run away was that they didn't have their purses, so no identification, and they had no extra clothes. Now, if you were looking at it, uh, this, it would pretty much say to you that this indicates that they didn't leave voluntarily, because if they left voluntarily, they would have brought their clothes, some money, their purse maybe. So, the community does respond with some sightings. Uh, initial reports stated the girls were last seen walking together away from Oscada High School. But then, a witness said he picked them up as they were walking along River Road and dropped them off in downtown Oscada at a gas station at River Road and Interstate 23. Now, police know that the girls were in downtown that day. Uh, they have other evidence of that. Um, uh, they have other evidence where they know that they were there for sure, but they didn't disclose how they drew that conclusion. Um, investigators believe that after this, though, the girls continued to hitchhike, but that they were abducted by two or more people. 
Investigators do believe they were murdered after this, but they have very few leads to prove this, and thus the, the case became cold. Investigators did explore a link to the unidentified Oakland County cold killer, but they think that he is an unlikely suspect. Pam's family posted a uh, $1,000 uh, reward for any information that would lead to Pam or point to her possible murderer. Now, you got to keep in mind the time frame. $1,000 in 1969 um, was probably a good bit of money. Uh, some, some time does pass without anything new, but then in 1985, about 16 years later, the police were given some information. They were told that the girls were murdered by two area men and buried near a barn that was known as a popular place where teens would party. So eventually the police chief directed an investigation of this lead and uh, of the area and the area was searched with the help of cadaver dogs. But no detectable evidence was found that human remains were at that location. They did search some other areas where teens were uh, known to hang out um, around that area, but they found nothing at those locations as well. Now let's talk about suspects. Um, I'll start off by mentioning that I do not know if the owner of that barn was ever looked at as a suspect or person of interest. A man who is now dead claimed to have given Pam and Patty a ride on the day they disappeared, but now it is said that that particular lead is no longer considered credible. There is a different person though, the guy that gave them a ride um, to the gas station. Now allegedly this guy was questioned as a potential suspect when police found out about him uh, giving the girls the ride. Some accounts say that he was actually cleared of having anything to do with the girl's disappearance. But, from what I have read, the man's questioning was never recorded for further investigators. It is now believed that he was the last person to see the girls alive on the day that they disappeared. I do have some silver lining here. Um, Pam's sister, Mary Burrell, is a huge advocate for her sister's case. Uh, she shows her support most notably at state events known as Missing in Michigan, where family members of missing Michigan residents rally alongside law enforcement and share details of missing cases. There, has, there have also been efforts to get both Pam and Patty's dental records and DNA into the national database so that their bodies, so that if their bodies had been located, um, and they are listed as Jane Doe's, that they could be positively identified. In 2010, a new detective was assigned to the case and interviewed all the witnesses again, or at least the ones that were still alive. The hope was that this would uncover new information or leads. And it may have worked because in 2013, police released a statement indicating they had a person of interest in the case, although they still needed additional information for the case to continue. They don't release the name of the person though, um, and I understand that that happens a lot in these investigations. But I will say this, if you have any information that could help law enforcement discover what happened to Pamela Sue Hobley and or Patricia Ann Spencer, um, and help forward this case in motion, please, please, please contact the Oscada Township Police Department and tell them what you know. Okay, so the next case is a double disappearance of a mother and son, and it is, and it is a very suspicious one. I'll tell you about Carolyn Sue Martin first. Uh, she is case number 2895DFMI in the Doe Network and case number MP6907 in NamUs. She is a Caucasian female with brown hair and blue eyes. She was born on January 19th of 1957 and was 24 at the time of her disappearance. She would be 63 now. She was five foot five and 110 pounds at the time. Carolyn has pierced ears, 
uh, one in each ear. Her son, Mark Stephen Martin, is case number 4222DMMI in the Doe Network, case number MP7251 in NamUs, and his NCMEC number is 112479, uh, 4795, I'm sorry. He is a Caucasian male with sandy, light brown hair and brown eyes. He was born on February 5th of 1979 and was two at the time of his disappearance. He would be 41 now. He was only two foot and 30 pounds at the time of his disappearance. Mark also goes by his nickname, Marky. So Carolyn and Marky were last seen on August 31st of 1981. Her family and friends went to their home in Madison Heights, Michigan that day. They were helping Carolyn pack. Carolyn had plans to take Marky and drive to San Antonio, Texas to be with her fiance. And I'm sorry, I'm going to butcher this name. Uh, Hamper, Hamper or, or Harry, uh, Kirizian, I'm sorry, y'all. Kirizian, uh, anyway, Harry had gotten a job in Texas and wanted Mark and Carolyn to join him there. His, uh, the plan was for Carolyn to travel with her twin brother, Timothy. Timothy would be in his own vehicle, but he was traveling to Oklahoma um, to look for work. So he would travel with her to keep an eye on her uh, for most of the way. Later that evening, Carolyn stopped by her mother's house in Hazel Park, Michigan to say goodbye. She told her mom that her travel plans had changed and that she would be taking a different route to Texas and she wouldn't be traveling with Timothy. The next day, Timothy heads over to his mother's house to meet with Carolyn and leave, but his mother tells him that Carolyn had already left. Of course, this gave Timothy a very uneasy feeling. Carolyn and Mark uh, were never seen again after going to her mother's house. It wasn't until the following spring that Mark and Carolyn were reported missing when they hadn't been heard from uh, for all that time. Now, Harry was the last person known to be with Carolyn and Mark because they were traveling with him. So when the missing person report is filed in the spring, police decide it's a good idea to talk to him. He says that during the trip, he and Carolyn got into an argument. Carolyn had decided she didn't want to go to Texas, and Harry said he stopped and let Carolyn and Mark out of his 1979 Pontiac Grand Prix. This was somewhere on Interstate 75 in Michigan near Toledo, Ohio. Uh, he said Carolyn and Mark only had one suitcase with them. Harry said he gave Carolyn $4,000 in cash, and she told him to get rid of her belongings. He claims he let her, he let her and Mark, uh, he, I'm sorry, he left her and Mark on the side of the road, and this was the last time he saw either of them. Harry uh, allegedly continued on his way to Texas, but ended up having car trouble, so he decided to turn around and go back to Michigan. Since Carolyn and Mark's disappearance, Harry has changed his name twice, and wouldn't you know, he refused to take a polygraph test. So how is Harry connected to Carolyn and Mark? Um, well, let me just tell you the sordid tale. So Harry is actually Mark's biological father, but he had very little to do with Carolyn or Mark until the summer of 1981. In the beginning of the summer, Carolyn filed a paternity suit against Harry, and in June of 1981, uh, the Macomb County Circuit Court ordered Harry to pay $30 a week uh, in child support. After the judgment, Harry and Carolyn decided to reconcile and Harry actually became a more involved father uh, with Mark. Carolyn was really excited about the reconciliation and was actually looking forward to beginning a new life with Harry. Now, 
Uh, because Harry was the last person known to have seen Carolyn and Mark, he is considered a person of interest in their disappearance. But there is no evidence to tie him to any crime. Timothy, uh, Carolyn's twin brother, believes there is a possibility that Mark is alive and has no idea who he is. He also uh, really misses his sister and is actually her and his nephew's biggest advocate. It's been 38 years since Carolyn and Mark's disappearance, and there are no answers to most of the questions in this case. So if you have uh, anything to contribute to help solving the case of Carolyn and Mark Martin's disappearances, uh, please contact the Madison Heights Police Department. All right, um, our next double disappearance is that of a couple of childhood friends. Case number 256DMMI in the Doe Network and case number MP14342 in NamUs is the case of Brian, and I'm going to say this all wrong, Brian George uh, Og, Ogjan. It's spelled O-G-N-J-A-N. Um, he is a Caucasian male with sandy brown hair and brown eyes. He was born on January 16th of 1958 and was 27 at the time of his disappearance. He would be 62 now. Um, so there's a lot of January birthdays in this episode. Um, Brian was between 5'8 and 5'10 and he was 175 pounds at the time of his disappearance. Brian had a mustache at the time and is... Uh, and it is known that he was wearing blue jeans. His friend is case number 255DMMI in the Doe Network. Um, I don't know why, but he is not on NamUs. Uh, I thought that was kind of weird. He is David Kenneth Tile. Uh, or it could be Till. It's spelled T-Y-L-L, -L, but I think it's Tile. I apologize wholeheartedly for... Um, mispronouncing their last names because I'm sure I'm 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 pretty sure I'm saying them wrong. Um David is a Caucasian male with brown hair and green eyes. He was born on August 21st of 1958 and was 27 as well at the time of his disappearance. He would be 61, almost 62 now. He was 6 foot 2 and 175 pounds. David had a beard at the time of his disappearance. It's November 22nd of 1985 in St. Clair Shores, Michigan, when David left his house accompanied by Brian. The longtime friends had planned to spend the weekend deer hunting in White Cloud in northern Michigan at David's family's cabin on Baseline Road. The last known uh, unconfirmed sighting of Brian and David is in the Hofton Lake Mio area of Michigan on the day they disappeared. In that area, um, they cashed a $50 check and left in David's black 1984 Bronco. They never arrived at the cabin or purchased hunting licenses. Is it just me or do Ford Broncos and Chevy Blazers always come up in disappearances? Uh, maybe that's a hint not to purchase those vehicles. In any case, uh, David's Bronco with license plate number 447HRZ has never been located and neither have David or Brian. At the time of their disappearance, they had about $140 between the two of them. Their case is cold for many years, although they did have suspects, but not enough evidence. Uh, then in May of 2003, almost 18 years after their disappearance, a major break is announced. Two brothers were arrested in connection with the case, Raymond Wilbur J.R. Duval Jr. and Donald Dean Coco Duval are believed to have killed Brian and David on the night of their disappearance. Before their arrest, uh, J.R. and Coco led a pretty rough existence. Uh, they lived off the Michigan woods, shooting game, and living in small cabins and trailers. So, uh, what changed about this case in 2003? Well, in 2003, a witness whom I'll only refer to as Barbara came forward. She told authorities that she and a friend who had since died had been 
at Linker's Lounge near Mio, Michigan. Barbara had seen David and Brian exchange words with the Duval brothers inside the bar. Barbara said that she and her friend later witnessed the, the brothers beat David and Brian to death with an aluminum baseball bat in a field near her home. She said that they then placed David and Brian's bodies inside the Ford Bronco and drove away. Barbara didn't come forward until, until 2003 because she was fearful of the Duval brothers. Several other witnesses reported that the Duvals uh, bragged about killing David and Brian, then cutting them up and feeding them to pigs. The, <clears throat> these witnesses were also apparently threatened into silence. Another witness, the girlfriend of J.R.'s son, came forward in 2003. She said that J.R. had bragged to her that he and Coco had killed the hunters over a dispute about a deer. He also told her that he had put the bodies through a wood chipper and fed the remains to pigs. J.R. threatened to do, the, to do the same thing to her if she ever left his son. Yet another witness, Coco's girlfriend at, at the time, said that in 1986, he confessed to killing the hunters. Coco then beat her and threatened to kill her if she told anyone. She and two other witnesses also also said that another brother, Rex, was driving the black Bronco a few days after the murders. Another Duval brother claimed that he didn't kill them, but helped transport the victims' bodies. Police actually suspected that another brother, Kenny, had scrapped the Bronco and sold it for parts. He told the police this in a taped interview, but had um, what you call courtroom amnesia while he was on the stand. Um, there was no blood or other phys physical evidence that linked the Duval brothers to David and Brian's disappearance and death. The Duval's attorney said they were being framed and the witnesses were all either lying or mistaken. The star prosecution's witness admitted to having nine alcoholic drinks prior to the witness uh, prior to witnessing David and Brian's murders. This doesn't matter though because in October of 2003, J.R. and Coco were convicted of two counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to life in prison. As recently as 2009, police have received tips about the possible location of Brian and David's remains. Based on Barbara's test uh, statements, investigators also believe that at least three other men were involved in the attack of Brian and David, but no one else has been charged at this point. There was a book uh, released about David and Brian's disappearance and presumed death in 2006. If you want to read more about this story, you can purchase that book uh, written by Tom Henderson, and it's called Darker Than Night, The True Story of a Brutal Double Homicide and an 18-Year-Long Quest for Justice. Uh, if you know anything about the location of Brian um, or David, you can contact the St. Clair Shores Police Department and provide your information. So our next case is our only other single disappearance this week. Uh, this is case number 151 DMMI in the Doe Network and case number MP830 in NamUs. This is, this is the disappearance of Gordon Thomas Page Jr. Uh, Gordon is a Caucasian male with grayish reddish brown hair and blue eyes. He was born on April 15th of 1963, and he was 28 at the time of his disappearance. He would be 57 now. He is 6 foot 3 and 175 pounds. He has a light tan birthmark on the lower left side of his ribcage, a scar under his chin, small white acne scars on his back, and a large brown mole on the inside of his upper leg. Uh, I don't know which one though. He has a scar on his pubic area from an operation to repair an undescended testicle during childhood. He may have a mustache, beard, or goatee. Uh, his facial hair is red and grows underneath his nose and on his chin. Uh, 
There are several white discolorations on his teeth, and he has a prominent Adam's apple. He only moves his eyes, not his head, when he uh, crosses the street. Gordon may stare and smile at others, which is how he says hello. His nickname is Gordy, and he wears a size 12 shoe. Now, you may be saying that's a lot of information about a person. Um, more information than I have ever told you before about any given person. Well, uh, that's because Gordy is a little special. Uh, Gordy is actually autistic, but he is high functioning and may appear normal. He is uh, verbal, but he has difficulty communicating because of his condition. Gordon, uh, Gordon has been misdiagnosed in the past because of his inability to communicate fluently. So if he is alive, he might not be diagnosed as autistic, but some, some other thing instead. And thus, uh, his medication and treatment might be incorrect. So, uh, Gordy was born on April 15th of 1963, and as Gordy began to grow, his parents started to realize that something was wrong, but they didn't know what. Gordon didn't want to run or walk like the other kids. He liked to sit in one spot and look around without even moving. But Gordy did excel at one thing, memorization. Um, and he was especially good at memorizing when it came to baseball. His dad said that he had about 25 or 30,000 baseball cards, and he knew the names of every player and all the statistics of the cards. He would just sit there and memorize them. Gordy himself didn't really realize that there was something different about him until he reached about junior high. His classmates started getting ahead of him, and when Gordy had to go to special education, the special education room, it really kind of bothered him. Uh, Gordy had a particularly hard time in the 11th and 12th grade because he couldn't keep up with everyone uh, who was passing him by. Gordy did graduate from high school, though, in June of 1981, and after graduation, Gordy was ready for his own job. Gordon Sr., helped his son apply for uh, his very first job at a local grocery store. He did get the job, and Gordy was pretty excited about it. Gordon Sr. was very proud of his son, too. Unfortunately, pretty soon after he started, the store manager had some concerns because Gordy was having trouble talking to the customers. Gordon Sr. tried to help Gordy with his social skills, but it just wasn't enough, and his job at the store didn't work out. Gordy's parents uh, were pretty concerned about his future, and so they asked a social worker to evaluate him. He was diagnosed with schizophrenia. It was suggested that Gordy start living in a group, ho group home, and after some contemplation, uh, his parents decided to give it a try. So the group home uh, would not accept Gordy until it was determined if he needed to be stabilized on medication in a hospital. So Gordy's parents did that. Doctors ended up prescribing him Ritalin and Valium. After that, Gordy was accepted into a well-regarded group home. While he was there, his medication was adjusted and he began feeling better. In September of 1989, Gordy was in good hands and it seemed to be and he seemed to be doing better. So, his parents felt like they could finally move to Florida as they had planned to for a while. Gordy uh, stayed behind in the group home in Michigan though. For several months, things went well until one day when Gordy was heavily medicated, he stole a truck that was left running in the driveway of the group home. Then, Gordy was involved in a hit-and-run. The lady that was involved in the hit-and-run gave a description of the man that hit her, and it matched Gordy. Then, officers received a call from one of the elementary schools that a man matching Gordy's description was at this, at this school wanting to teach a class. Officers responded at the school and located Gordy. 
He was picked up from the school and brought to the hospital. While at the hospital, a psychiatric social worker evaluated Gordy again. He went into the hospital with the label of schizophrenia. Uh, But the social worker knew that with schizophrenia, once the patient is medicated, within a couple of weeks, their thinking starts to clear up and their behavior will become normal. This wasn't what, what was happening with Gordy. After, after several months of intensive therapy, the psychiatric social worker realized that Gordy was not schizophrenic, but he was autistic. So after the new diagnosis, Gordy uh, was medicated correctly, and he began to behave like a totally different person in a good way. In March of 1991, Gordy was placed in the Cascades Foster Care Home on Craft Avenue and 60th Street in Grand Rapids, Grand Rapids, Michigan. This place was an established treatment center for autism. Now, Gordy's parents were living in Florida, so because of that, it was about um, two months before they visited Gordy in Michigan at this new home. I believe it was, uh, uh, this was also because it was suggested that they wait this long so that Gordy uh, could acclimate to the new environment. So Gordon's dad goes to visit him in May of 1991. Uh, His dad left Grand Rapids after seeing Gordy on May 21st. Gordon was apparently so anxious to go back to Florida with his dad that he tried to get into his dad's van as he was leaving. Then, six days later, on May 27th, Gordy disappeared from the home. At the time, he was not carrying any identification or cash on him. He had left that uh, he had left all of that at the home. So, Gordy is reported missing and sightings begin to be re- reported. Some witnesses reported seeing a man matching Gordy's description hitchhiking along Interstate 96 in Grand Rapids shortly after his disappearance from the home. Also, part of a baseball card collection was discovered under an overpass on Interstate 96 about six weeks after his disappearance. So about these cards. They were located near ramps leading to Detroit, Michigan and Chicago, Illinois. Three of the cards had been put, had been separated from the rest of the collection. Those three cards cards were Gordy's favorite players: Robin Yount, Paul uh, Molitor, and Eddie Murray. It is really unknown for sure if these baseball cards belong to Gordy, but I believe they suspect that they were they are uh, Gordy's. There was also some other reported sightings of Gordy throughout the U.S. and Canada since 1991. I don't know how many of those alleged sightings have been confirmed, though. So, Gordy's hobbies include collecting sports cards, shopping at sports memorabilia, music, and antique stores, playing baseball, basketball, and swimming. Gordy may collect empty bottles or cans along roadsides for cash and may be working with migrant workers, with a traveling carnival, or as a farmhand. He may linger around automobile dealerships or tents in campsites. He generally keeps himself or stays on the fringe of crowds. Now, it is also a possibility that Gordy may have been admitted to a hospital as an unidentified patient due to his medical condition. So, if you know anything about the whereabouts of Gordon Thomas Page Jr., or you think you may have come across someone matching his description, you can contact the Kent County Sheriff's Office and help Gordy get back to his parents. All right, uh, final case this week and final double, double disappearance for this week. Uh, I think this is going to be a pretty short one because I don't have a whole lot of information about this case. This is another mother and daughter disappearance. Uh, Let's talk about the disappearance of Mindy Lou and Jersey Arnett. I love that name, Jersey. Um, 
So the mom is Mindy Lou and she is case number 3158 DFMI in the Doe Network and case number MP9787 in NamUs. Mindy is a Caucasian female with brown hair and hazel eyes. I don't have her date of birth, but she was 20 at the time of her disappearance and um, she would be about 37 or so now. Uh, she was five foot three and 125 pounds at the time of her disappearance. Now, Mindy Lou has a history of drug abuse and psychiatric problems, but at the time of her disappearance, she was taking medication for her condition. Her daughter, Jersey Arnett, is case number 3157 DFMI in the Doe Network and case number MP9788 in NamUs. Her NCMEC number is 1172153. Jersey is a Caucasian female with brown hair. I don't know about her eye color. She was born on January 31st of 2002. Another January birthday this uh, for this week. She was only seven months old at the time of her disappearance and she would be 18 now. She was only 24 inches long and 20 pounds when she went missing. Okay, so uh, Mindy gave birth to, to Jersey in January of 2002. Uh, shortly after Jersey's birth, the state removed her from the care of her mother. Child protection authorities had received reports from family members that Mindy was mentally unstable, that she was abusing drugs, and that she was um, neglecting Jersey. In the summer of 2002, Mindy's sister in Flint, Michigan, received temporary custody of Jersey. Mindy was living with her parents in uh, Stockbridge, Michigan, during this period of time. And it looked like Mindy was trying to get herself together. Uh, she was taking psychiatric medication. She was attending weekly parenting classes. And she was making progress towards the goals she needed to reach in order to, rega to regain custody of Jersey. Mindy also visited Jersey pretty frequently during this period of time. So on August 14th of 2002 at about 6.30 p.m., Mindy's sister and her husband left Mindy alone with Jersey at their home while the couple went out to dinner. This didn't seem like a horrible idea because Mindy seemed to be on the right track and it surely looked as if she would be getting Jersey back eventually. But when Mindy's sister and her husband returned home after dinner, both Mindy and Jersey were gone. At 2 a.m. on August 15th, Mindy's 1992 Honda Civic Del Sol was found parked mid-span on the Mackinac Bridge, about 200 feet above the Strait of Mackinac. Investigators uh, were able to determine that Mindy had driven across the bridge to the, to the toll booth area, turned around and went back the other way, briefly got onto Interstate 75, then returned and drove north on uh, the bridge. A motorist reported seeing a vehicle matching Mindy's car parked in, in the northbound passing lane. They said a woman was standing outside of the vehicle reaching inside uh, the rear door. An hour later, Mindy's car was found abandoned at that spot. Jersey's car seat was in the back seat. Mindy's purse, her keys, a diaper bag, and a half-empty baby bottle were also in the car. There was no signs of Mindy or Jersey at that scene. Now, authorities quickly concluded that Mindy jumped off the Mackinac Bridge with Jersey. Mindy had tried to take her own life earlier in 2002. Uh, she had also previously threatened to kill herself and Jersey. An extensive week-long search of the Straits of Mackinac turned up no signs of Mindy or Jersey, though. Multiple Multiple agencies assist, assisted in the searches. Uh, the University of Michigan even offered assistance by providing a computer module of where uh, the bodies might be located, taking into account the currents, wind, and weight of the missing persons. But all of this was to no avail.
Um, when they were not located in the water, all involved agencies were, of course, disappointed. They wanted to be able to recover their bodies and offer some kind of closure to their family. Now, uh, you can think that Mindy and Jersey did drown that morning, and unfortunately their bodies have never been located. Or, you can think that their bodies were never located because they were never in the water, and that the scene was staged to look a certain way. Now, I personally want to believe that they are still alive, although I do realize that that is probably unlikely. If you do know anything about the whereabouts of Mindy Lou or Jersey Arnett, you can contact the Michigan State Police to provide any information. Okay, um, I do have a really quick scene again for you this week. I know I haven't done one in a while because I have been publishing those bonus episodes, but I don't have a bonus episode for you this week, so I'll tell you a scene again. This is a pretty recent um, case. It happened in May of this year. Um, so in Battle Creek, Michigan, on the morning of May 16th of 2012, Michigan State Police issued an endangered missing advisory for five-day-old Jeffrey Michael Smith Jr. He has blonde hair and hazel-colored hazel eyes. He was last seen wearing a gray onesie with, a, uh, with small teddy bears on it. Michigan State Police believe the baby was with his biological father, Jeffrey Michael Smith Sr., and may be in danger due to uh, comments made by the father to harm the child. Police were on the lookout for a 2003 black Chevy Tahoe. The baby did not have any additional food or clothing, and the father had an active warrant for his arrest out of Emmett Township Public Safety in Battle Creek. Later on the same day, I believe it was at least, Jeffrey Jr. was located, unharmed in the care of his maternal grandmother at her home in Newton Township. Smith Sr. was not initially present at that scene. So while officers are waiting for the baby's mother, who is the alleged victim of uh, a domestic assault, Smith Sr. drove up to the scene, but he refused to cooperate with the police and he fled the scene. As he was driving away, Smith reportedly collided into an unoccupied uh, Michigan State Police Patrol vehicle and, uh, and he damaged the car. So state troopers did not immediately pursue Smith when he fled from the scene, but he was being pursued by police in the area. A state trooper in Kalamazoo County later observed Smith's vehicle and attempted to make a traffic stop. Smith pulled over and the officer pulled up behind him. Um, when he did this, Smith put his car in reverse and hit the patrol car, but the vehicle became stuck. So Smith, who did not sustain any injuries, was arrested without further incident and taken into Kalamazoo County Jail. A state trooper sustained minor injuries and two Michigan State Police Patrol uh, vehicles sustained damage in the incident, police said. So there's your scene again for this week. Um, it was really short, um, but, you know, we got to break back into it. So, so that completes uh, the cases and the scene again for this week in Michigan. A lot of missing people, quite a few double disappearances, and some really unique cases. Uh, Michigan wasn't as bad as I thought it was going to be, thankfully. I thought that I would have to sort through a lot of cases, but truthfully, most of the, the, most of the cases I found had very little information, and I really did want to tell you about as many missing people as I could without giving you too much to consume mentally. So I hope I succeeded, and it wasn't too much. Um, so with that being said, if you like this episode, or you just like this whole podcast in general, do me a favor and tell people about it. Yeah, uh, I would really love to build my audience, and it's much easier to do, uh, to do that with your help. If you haven't done so already, 
go ahead and find the Facebook page. It's at backslash, uh, facebook.com backslash NTVSA podcast. Give it a like and follow it to get the updates and to see pictures. You can also submit a case suggestion there. And if you don't have Facebook, but you want to tell me a certain case, uh, you can email me at never to be seen again podcast at gmail.com. All suggestions are welcome. Also, please, if you haven't done so already, please go like, favorite, uh, follow, rate, and or review on whatever platform you listen on if any of those are an option. Apple Podcasts and Stitcher listeners, please give this podcast five stars. And in the review, you can say, you can write whatever you want, honestly. Um, those five star those five star ratings really help this podcast climb the charts. And the higher on the charts it uh, it gets, it's more that means more listeners. Um, the more listeners I get, actually, the 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 so I mean it's basic understanding. The more listeners I get, the more people hear about these cases, and the better chances there are of any one of these missing people being located. Um, and you as a listener can help me accomplish that. Uh, so thank you to everyone for listening and thank you for your continued support and thank you for the reviews and ratings thus far. Um, I really do love my listeners and, um, and I do this for you, but I also do this, uh, with the hope that someone who is lost can be found. And if I have anything to do with it and if y'all have anything to do with you know one lost person being located um i have fulfilled something in my life um so if you would could you go ahead and please tune in next week to hear more about those never to be seen again